today, I get to introduce our distinguished alum of the year. Her name is Dr. Heather Peterson. <laughs> Dr. Peterson is senior editor at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a nonprofit that exists to help Christians understand their place in God's story and serve him with clarity, confidence, and courage. She edits and contributes to the writing of Breakpoint, a daily commentary heard over on over 950 radio stations and affiliate outlets with tens of thousands more podcasts and emails. Previously, Peterson served as an associate professor and chair of the Department of English here and Literature here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. When nominated, Peterson was praised for her compassionate presence with, students, presence with students and her rigorous intellect that affords her opportunities to reach a broad range of people for the kingdom, saying further that she has consistently and faithfully demonstrated a hunger to both know Christ more deeply and image him more broadly. Heather's all-time favorite role is being wife to Tim and mother to Ruthie and Addie, two remarkably different middle schoolers. So I present to you Dr. Heather Walker-Peterson. Oh, it's so amazing to be back. I'm grateful to see all of you. It's not much of a faith if it can't be critiqued. This is something that my dissertation advisor said to me. Uh, I was working on my PhD I was focusing on the social identity of an immigrant church, a Slavic church, and I was looking at how reading and writing in that church setting affected their sense of identity. But I realized after studying for a while that the academic theory that I was applying, and it was called post-structuralist theory, it's a part of a theory called critical theory. I realized the theory I was applying meant that I would need to critique my own faith. And I was scared. And I had a kind advisor. I don't know if he was a believer, but a kind advisor. And I went to him and said, I'm afraid if I critique my own faith. It's going to destroy it. And he said, what I just told you, it's not much of a faith if it can't be critiqued. And he was right. And he also said, maybe it won't destroy it. Maybe instead of destruction, there will be reconstruction. So for this message today, the title's called Speaking the Truth in Love. And I thought I would tell you my own walk with de deconstruction, um, where I spent a couple of years critiquing my faith and asking really hard questions about my belief system and about the history of Christianity. And I titled this message because one of the things I learned was that if you're going to speak the truth, you better have a truth that can withstand critique. And even though my story happened almost two decades ago, 
The theories I was dealing with are the theories that are part of our culture right now, what we call at the Colson Center, our cultural mood. And I actually think that it could be harder for you today than it was for me back then. Because back then, I was told I was ignorant. But for you today, if you speak the truth, you're often told you are hateful. Before I get to my story of deconstruction, I want to tell you two ways how Northwestern, I was an English major here with, at the time, what was called a writing emphasis, although I'll admit I took as much literature as possible. <laughs> uh, how Northwestern prepared me to withstand the critique I was going to give myself and my faith. So first of all, at Northwestern, I learned to fall in love with the Old Testament. I'd grown up in a home where really the Old Testament, to some extent, was, it's not that it wasn't important, but we definitely didn't highlight it, right? You focused on, and that was sort of actually the theology, the popular theology at the time. You focused just on the New Testament instead. And I had a teacher here, he's retired now. He was a new teacher then, a new professor. His name was Ardell Kennedy. And he taught me to look at the whole Bible and that the gospel really starts at the beginning of the story, right? We have the Trinity there present in creation. And I remember once thinking what looked like black and white text on a page had become full of living color. And I found that so important because one of the things that held me through my time of deconstruction was that I remembered that people were made in God's image. When I first entered my PhD program, I quickly recognized that the scholarship and articles that I was reading were meant to undermine my faith, that we didn't have the same assumptions. And I didn't want to approach it as, I'm just gonna attack and criticize everything that is here. What God spoke to me was that even the authors who wrote these is made in my image. And therefore, there could be some fragment of truth they're holding, even if they don't get the comprehensive picture. And so, that's one of the things I held. I'm, and if you've been in my writing theory and ethics class I used to teach, I used to say, what are we gonna affirm that's true? And what are we gonna criticize? Like, let's do both. Let's give this guy or this woman a fair shake because he or she was made in the image of God. And there may be some fragment of truth that he or she can share with us. And so that's just one way, right, that the Old Testament became important to me. Second, something that was really important I gained while I was at Northwestern is I was a writing emphasis, right, major, as I said before. And that was, I learned from a professor who's still here today that it was good and healthy to be aware of what was going on inside of myself. And I'll just admit to you, I avoided self-reflection. I was scared that what was in me was so dark and nasty, and you guys, and actually a little bit was, right? Um, that I didn't want to be self-reflective. So I was a writing emphasis 
who did not take Judy Haugen's creative writing class until the spring of her senior year. Because there was no way I was going to take a, a class with that professor who wore socks and Birkenstocks, right? <laughs> but I did take that class with her, and it helped me to recognize that part of my intimacy with God is actually having self-awareness, having close people that I share sometimes my strange angers and fears I didn't understand, my distorted view of reality that I sometimes had, little bits of paranoia, things like that. Um, and that was a huge gift. And with that gift of being able to know that self-awareness is a good thing, that prepared me for this season of critiquing my own faith. So after that discussion with my dissertation advisor, I went back to my grad apartment, which was a really dirty, like 1980s sublet apartment, brown carpet. And I got down on my knees, and at the time I was a big prayer journaler. Um, and when you have children, all that changes. Um, so I was a big prayer journaler, and I got down on my knees and I talked to God. And I sincerely believe that if I just gave up on God, I would lose my sense of purpose in life. And so what I said to him was this. I said, I'm going to keep saying you and your son and your Holy Spirit is true. I'm going to keep saying that. I'm going to try to believe that. I said that. I'll keep showing up at church I'll keep showing up in my small group. Um, but, and I'll even believe that scripture, God, I mean, scripture has got to be your word. But when it comes to all the doctrines and different interpretations I have of it, God, it is on the table from now on. And that's what I did. I started questioning everything. I was clinically depressed for two years. It was a really hard two years. I did stay in my small group. And I had this amazing small group leader. He, his name is Andy. He still lives locally. And he, I remember when I told him, I want you to know this is what I'm going through. I walked away from the table and I heard him turn to his wife and say, this is good. Like me questioning God was good. And that was precious. And so I put, I, I looked at my interpretation of scripture. I looked at the history of Christianity and I would tell them to him. And he sometimes would agree and he sometimes would disagree. And sometimes he would point out, but Heather, let's remember Christians also did this. Um, so I stayed in that small group. I ended up having to go to a different church because the church I was in at the time, I would come home feeling so guilty that I did not feel close to God because I had lost my emotions for God, right? That were always trying to muster up. I would come home feeling so guilty that I actually would want to hurt myself. And I remember once actually calling Judy, who was my friend by then, and her talking me out of it and reminding me that God still loved me even if I was asking hard questions, that she loved me and that our friends loved me. So I ended up going to a church where it felt okay just to show up. 
And in fact, just a few weeks ago, one of the pastors of my church here said, said, maybe the reason why King David is a man after God's own heart is that he just kept going back to him. And that's what I did. I just kept going back to God, even though the emotions weren't there. God also gave me the gift of Christian thinkers who also were not afraid of critique. Um, So those of you who are biblical and theological studies majors, maybe some of these will be familiar. Um, I know that all of you are gonna be familiar with one of them though. Um, One of them was Kevin Van Hooser from Trinity, who helped me to understand, oh yeah, there are pastors who interpret scripture and people give them too much power and really unhealthy things happen. Another one was N.T. Wright, so maybe you're familiar with N.T. Wright, and he helped me to understand what's good about critical theory is an awareness that we all might take on some assumptions of our culture and family without realizing it. And we can take on those assumptions and we need to re-examine them. And yet at the same time, we can go back to God and say that he's knowable. So reality is still knowable. It's not just what we all make up in our head. Um, So that was N.T. Wright. And then another one was a special hero of mine who is hard to read even two pages, I'm afraid, by him, Oliver O'Donovan. And what he helped me with is that in the critical theory I was using, the expectation would be that I would analyze this immigrant congregation according to those who were in power and those who resist power. That every single interaction was power over or resisting power. And my gut said to me, that can't be right. It can't be right. So either people are choosing to support wrongful power or they're resisting wrongful power. Does that mean there's no healthy power, like people's use of authority? And Oliver O'Donovan reminded me that we all sometimes just participate in our interactions, just like we participate in God's story. And my dissertation advisor allowed me to add that as a third category in my analysis. But of course, there's one more, and that's C.S. Lewis, right? So all those stories from childhood, those things from childhood, and some of you have heard me say this before, but there's this book that's one of my favorite, well, it's my third favorite C.S. Lewis book, right? The Silver Chair, where there's this like really crabby, froggy character named Puddlegrum, and if you watch, like not the latest um, movies of the Chronicles of Narnia, but the old ones. He's played by Tom Baker, who played the best Doctor Who. Right. (laughs) Anyway, Puddle Glum at one point says, suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have, then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. I am on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. And I clung to that statement from Pelagum 
as I clung to God. Not long after I got my dissertation done, so a few years later, I actually defended my dissertation at 10 weeks, which I don't recommend. <laughs> I had my first child. I still attended church. I prayed with my husband. But in general, I wasn't outspoken about my faith. And I was pretty quiet about my faith. And I was a little embarrassed to be a Christian. Um, sometimes you see excesses like, or extremism, and it's hard. And I was lying on the couch because I had a 16-month-old. She was very verbal. And you're not supposed to do this, but I let her watch a show because I was pregnant eight months with my second daughter, and it was not a fun pregnancy. I was exhausted. I felt like a little old lady. I was so weak and tired. And I was not the VeggieTale generation, but I thought, this will be a safe show so that I can lie down. <laughs> and my very verbal 16-year-old, she was already speaking in, in little sentences by the time she was 16 months, watched King George and the Ducky. Right? Yeah. Uh, which is a story of, in case you're not familiar, <laughs> of David and Bathsheba, but, you know, sanitized. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And she came running back to me, and her eyes were huge and glowing, and she was so excited and asking me little questions. And something clicked inside of me. Like, it was just like I had not had strong emotions and a sense of a connection to God in a few years, but I just tried to stay faithful. I just kept calling on him and something clicked. It was just like, oh, this is the story. This story that starts with the beginning of the Bible, this gospel, this is a story that I want to raise my kids in. This Christianity, okay, there's been Christians who have just done horrible things. I understand that. But this God and this story, regardless of that, is where I want to raise my kids. And those emotions came back. And I remember even walking into a class that next fall, and it was just different. I had confidence, again, in talking about my faith. So now back to today, though, because you guys are in a different situation it's 20 years later. And what I want to encourage you to do is go back to the story of creation and know that you and others are made in the image of God. There's another theologian, because clearly I didn't stop reading theology. Now I work at the Colson Center. <laughs> Right. There's another theologian whose name is Richard Lentz, and he talks about how the image of God, even though we just see it at the beginning of Genesis in the creation narrative, how it actually goes all the way through the Bible. Like, you know that it lands in the New Testament because you hear about Jesus is a perfected image of God. 
right? But it goes all the way through because he, he describes the earth as God's temple. And instead of having idols like the pagan gods had, we are God's image. We're God's image. And so actually in the Old Testament, when idols are brought up, that's because of the assumption, right, that the image of God has been lost. So the number one thing I want to do, encourage you to start with, right, is like I, as a young person, younger person was called to do, First, see people in the image of God. According to Richard Litt, that is their primary human identity. So step one, you first see people in the image of God. And then step two is you remember they are affected by sin. When I was studying an immigrant church, for my dissertation, most of the research I did was on race and ethnicity. And I was grateful for these articles because they helped me to affirm that truth in Genesis, which is that we are embodied. The way I move throughout the world, other people, the way I, my appearance, the fact that I'm a woman, the color of my skin, my class, other people will interact, right? The way they interact with me will unfortunately be based on that. And that was really important for me because for the first time in my PhD program, I started to acknowledge like systematic injustice and I was grateful for that. And I actually, not from the past, but also the United States, in the past United States, currently at this time. And actually, I realized systematic injustice was a biblical concept because we see this with the Hebrew midwives, right? And the baby boys, the Hebrews, that they were told to kill and didn't. And in fact, we're told in one, in the book of Micah, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? We're reminded that God used his prophets to call for the well-being of his people that were under unjust denomination. In, sorry, unjust domination. But what I learned through my deconstruction process is that first you start with everybody is made in the image of God and that is their primary identity. And then second, you move to the critique. And so at the Coulson Center, we're dealing with issues like this. We're dealing with issues such as in my own field of English, people saying we should no longer read the classics at all. We should be done with the classics because there's embedded racism in them. Even saying that about Shakespeare, which would, I'm sure, really hurt the heart of a professor here that I know. 
But instead, what I want to recommend is first you start with the primary, the primary identity being the image of God. So when you look at the classics, when you look at Shakespeare, start with what does he have? What universal value does he have to share with us? But then, of course, you go to that critique. You go and you point out that there can be racism or other embedded injustices in his work. Part of loving like God is treating, uh, starting with treating others with, a, with this kind of dignity. And I would even relate that to democratic principles of free speech and innocent until proven guilty. As one of my friends said, do you know that reading the words of others, even or particularly those we oppose in some ways is an act of humility? But then let's move on to one other difficult issue today, and that is gender and sexuality. When I was in my PhD program, recognizing my embodiment was a beautiful thing because I felt more comfortable in my skin as a woman than I had at any other time. Even though I was surrounded by men, having, realizing that I was embodied was a good thing. It was a blessing. And yet now, 20 years later, theories have changed, and we're being told that it's okay to deny the body we're in, to even denigrate ourselves, to act as though they are a non-essential, an optional part of who and what we are, and to even hint otherwise is deemed hatred. Yet again, I go back to the creation story, and part of being made in God's image is being made man and woman. And part of being made in God's image is having the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying, which means that they were heterosexual. So here's where the idolation comes in. While I was taught at Northwestern that it's good to be authentic as far as sharing what's going on inside of me with close friends, to checking in with others, to having them help me to bear reality. Instead, people, even believers, are now being told that discomfort with their body takes precedence. The image of God that grants us our dignity as human beings is being traded for an idol built in the image of our fragile and frail desires. So a way of loving, because we need to go back to loving, is if you have friends with those kinds of challenges inside, you walk with them, you hear them, you acknowledge their pain, you be the kind of safe people they can be vulnerable with, but you point them to the faithful life. And when you acknowledge these truths, people will say you're cruel, they'll say you're homophobic, they'll call you transphobic. But real love is based in truth. We know that Jesus says, you shall love thy Lord, thy God, with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is your first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it means that our loves are ordered. We start with our love for God first. 
My, so how do you be, have courage in this kind of culture? My 11 and my 12-year-old daughters are into Harry Potter, of course, right? And they're always telling me I'm a Ravenclaw. And I'm like, I am not. I am a Gryffindor, right? Because Gryffindor are characterized by courage. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, Rawlings aside, let's take the Russian dissident Alexander Solnitsyn, who, by the way, said this, live not by lies. Um, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1970. He said, the simple step of a simple, courageous man is not to partake in falsehood, not to support false actions. And then he said, one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. Right, so I'm gonna move because I realize I'm, I'm running short of time. Um, so I imagine it this way, all right? There's these beautiful Old Testament stories, and one is the bitter water. And the bitter water is this log that is pointed out, right, to Moses. And he takes this log and he throws it into the bitter water, and the water becomes sweet. I want you to know right, that what you bring as a Christian, when you bring truth, and especially when in this weird time period you bring a culture of forgiveness, of not canceling others or allowing yourself to be canceled, right, you are throwing the cross of Jesus into the waters of our culture. So there's only, I don't have, I only have a little, a short bit of time here, so let me just end quickly. My hope for you as students at Northwestern is that you will leave here with a faith worth critiquing and a faith worth living. So study the whole story of God's scripture, including creation. Learn to show up for God and keep going back to him, even when you don't feel like it. Be real and be the safe kind of person that can walk with your friends faithfully through their hard struggles. And see what God's vision of our society and culture can be, and then go out and be part of that restoration. So God bless you. Please speak truth. Please don't live by lies like Alexander Solnitsyn said. And thank you for your time today. <laughs>